Good morning, Branches. How are we doing? Early service. You're bright and early. It's a beautiful December morning. We're here at Branches. Hey, uh, thanks for everybody who participated in our Be Rich campaign, uh, finally drawing that to a close. We had a great turnout. Uh, a lot of you showed up for the serve projects and gave uh, t- over twenty thousand um, dollars, which is going split up between uh, three nonprofits. That's clap worthy. That's clap worthy. That's good. Uh, between the three nonprofits, Michelle's Love, Riverside Community Outreach, and Crew Ministries, uh, doing good work in our community. So thank you so much for being a part of that. Another good year. I asked uh, that we exceed last year, and it, last year was 19-something. So we are uh, achieving, not overachieving. Um, so <laughs> uh, when that comes around again next year, um, just know that we're looking for 100% participation more than anything, more than a number, um, because I, I believe that giving is so much more about uh, our heart posture towards giving rather than uh, uh, what it produces in a number. I, just over a month ago, I was in Ethiopia, and they took up an offering there, and uh, these, Ethi- these poor like Ethiopians come together, and they're just like throwing money on this. They, <laughs> they busted out a rug. They just found a rug in the building. They pulled it over, and I'm like, what are they doing with this rug? They're not, there's no English translation going on here, right? And so I see this rug come out, and all of a sudden, these guys, everybody just comes up, and they're hucking money at this thing. And I'm like, that is the most beautiful thing. Everybody in that room got up and gave. And I I didn't hear the tally, but I was told, like, I said, how much money is that? And it was, like, minuscule of what it actually equaled. But to me, it was the most beautiful thing ever. I mean, it's this picture of just generosity uh, and heart posture that was just absolutely beautiful. So I look forward to Be Rich next year. But today, we are continuing our series, Nativity Side B, looking at some of the unexpected truths in the Christmas nativity that we see, you know, shepherds, wise men, baby Jesus in a manger, Mary and Joseph, there's even a a sheep present, sometimes other animals, you know, lowing, whatever that is, they're doing their thing, the animals do in the stable. Um, But yeah, so we're continuing this series today, Um, you know, something that loves that I love about Christmas is uh, the feeling that it gives you when you see just the lights and the, you hear the music and whether it's that or like the food for you surrounding the Christmas season or just the family that you get to see that you don't normally get to see. It's that warm, fuzzy feeling. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's when it gets all the feels and you're just like, ah, this is good. You know, for me, something that did that to me besides Christmas as a, uh, as a young kid was, was music. I mean, music just got me going. It made me so excited. And for me, again, that was metal. Music was what really spoke to me, believe it or not. And there's actually some metal bands that have just like deep lyrics. And there's a, I think there's a disproportionate amount of like Christian metal artists. Like it's crazy. Like a lot of the great metal bands, you know, they have like, you know, they grew up in church and they're, you, you read their lyrics and you're like, this is incredible. Like this stuff. And so for me growing up, I wanted to know what it was about these artists that could make me feel a certain way. Like, how is it they're writing their music? How is it that they're writing their lyrics that speak to me at such a deep level? So I kind of set, set out to, like, know bands more than, than most people. And so when I would find a band that I liked that really made me feel like that, I would go research this band. And the research of the deep web back in, like, the early 2000s, it wasn't easy. I mean, I had to do some serious digging back then. It 
Well, there's no chat GPT. There was nothing like that. Google was barely a thing, and it didn't know what it was doing half the time. So I would, I would like try to find like, you know, old songs and, and bios and details about the artist, and it was hard. But when I did, it was beautiful. And what I would often find was like through like a BitTorrent or like, you know, some kind of lime wire. I would go on there, and I'd try to find, if you know, you know, by the way. I was pirating music, and so, which was sketchy, like super sketchy back then. You get all sorts of stuff when you're expecting a song, right? So I was like, I'd go on there and I'd find like these old cuts of music. And I'm like, this was like recorded in someone's garage. Like it was cool though, because I'm like, you get to understand like the heart of the artist. You get to see it in a different way um, that, that you can't just get with the hits. So I kind of set out to like really know why is it that it makes me feel the way that it makes me feel. And I think it's pretty cool because uh, when you look at vinyl records, even though these weren't a thing when I was a kid, they were just like old technology and weren't cool anymore. Right now, they're like a novelty and they become cool again. I get that. Um, but when I was younger, this, these were like nothing. I mean, you'd find hundreds and hundreds of them at like garage sales and stuff. People were just like, get rid of them. These are stupid. You know, we're moving on to be- bigger and better and cassette tapes, right? That's the future. That's the future. Those things were horrible. Got to rewind them and all that. But... Um, but when you look at a, a vinyl record, it's really cool to me. It's fascinating. I mean, you got, you got the side A, right? The side A, and then you got the side B. And, and there's a difference between side A and side B. Side A uh, gives you the hits. It's what the record label has come together with the producers and the artists. They're like, this is the music that's going to sell. It's going on side A. Side B, you get the, not the throwaways, but the stuff that the producers and the record label and maybe even the band was less excited about. But it doesn't, I don't think it takes away from the importance of side B. Because in those side B cuts, those deep cuts, we might call them today, we find a view into the heart of the artist, a sometimes more raw and emotional view of the artist that you miss out on otherwise, if you're just looking at the side A, I mean, side A of this, this Christmas with Lawrence Welk, you got let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Banger, right? There's no question. Let it snow, let it, we all know that one. Uh, you got Winter Wonderland. Are you kidding me? That's a great song. The backside, you got Thanks for Christmas. Like how many, there's probably been a million songs called that and no one cares about them because... Christmas comes but once a year. Yeah, maybe you've heard it once or twice, but it does not hold a candle to let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. We know this. So the A-side, you know, it's the A-side for a reason, but at the same time, if we miss the B-side, we miss out on looking into the heart of the artist uh, in a more full, holistic way. And I think in the same way as we look at the nativity, you know, Jesus is baby Jesus for a reason. He's the star of the show. He should be, not discounting that at all. But there's other elements that aren't there by mistake. The stuff on the periphery with the wise men and the, the shepherds, they're not there by mistake. They weren't just like a toss in, like, by the way, there were shepherds and wise men around. They were there for a reason. And if we miss the deep cuts, we kind of miss this uh, interesting perspective, this, this new look into really the heart of the artist of it all, God. And so that's what we're looking into this series is some of the lesser known elements of the nativity. So I want to pray for us today. Lord, would you have your way in this room this morning? God, would you speak through me? Help my words to fall in receptive ears and change us to be more like you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get started today, I want to look at a verse we've probably all heard before. It's a classic, and it goes like this. 
For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government, it says, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Those are some big boasts, so we'll get back to that in a second. His government and its peace will never end. It's an eternal kingdom. He will rule in fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor, David, for all eternity. How many of you guys have heard this verse before? Like if you've been to a Christmas Eve service, like this verse has probably been popped up before. And this is so cool because you see the guy who wrote it, Isaiah, prophet from the 8th and 7th century BC. Who's he talking about in this verse, or in these verses? I guess clearly Jesus, right? There's no question, that's Jesus. But it was written seven or 800 years before Jesus. That's incredible. You're like, what? This was the anticipation, the expectation of the coming Messiah, the one who would reign on the throne with fairness and justice of the ancestor David. And the significance of David really is, is the Jews looked back on people and, and rulers that they always thought this person would come to make it right. And they looked to David as one of those people that almost made it. Like he was almost the guy. If you had a, a Christ-like example to look back on, it was kind of this guy, David, the Davidic king, the, the, the good king before all the kings really started taking a nosedive. Like he was their guy. And so to reign on the throne of David, this was a big deal, a big boast. And they said he'd be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Massive boast. This is huge anticipation, expectation for this coming child. This is crazy. Now, if you put yourselves in the sandals of a first century Jew in Israel, how do you imagine this promised Messiah, the Son of God coming to the earth, how would you imagine he's going to show up? Like, I always think it's interesting when the president comes to town. It's not very often. I don't think our Portland likes presidents much in general. So things get interesting when presidents come to town. Like, they're shutting down freeways. They're shutting down, like, all sorts of stuff. And you see the motorcade come through, and it's like, escalate, escalate, limo, limo, escalate, like, armored everything. It's all just like, it's all out, right? I, I would imagine someone, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor, to be showing up, like, at least like that. You know, he's rolling into the airport, and it's, private jet with his entourage. He's got to have an entourage, right? I mean, this guy's got to have an entourage. I mean, he's the everlasting father, the one who's going to reign with fairness and justice on the throne of David. This guy's showing up with some clout. He's got to, right? This is the son of God coming to earth. He's going to show up, be like, hey, look at me, son of God over here. That's, that's kind of what you'd expect, right? You put yourself in the shoes. I know we all know the story probably. So you're like, ah, no, that's not how it happened. I know, I know. But that's what would make sense if you're in someone, or if you're someone who is in the first century AD. This is the expectation. Instead, we see the Son of God showing up in flesh and bone in an unexpected way. What did that look like? In Luke 2, 7, we see this. She gave birth, talking about Mary, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly, oh, that's sweet, in strips of cloth and lied him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And when you think about this, is it really, is it really cute? 
Is it really sweet? I mean, it's awesome that the Son of God's coming, don't get me wrong. But the way that he shows up, I mean, this is kind of a weird verse. And if you grew up in church, especially, you read this, you've read this like hundreds of times, and you're just like, you've heard it. You're like, okay, it's just the way it was. Snuggly and strips of cloth, that's probably normal for a baby to be snuggly, you know, in some cloth. Um, but light him in a manger. Again, the manger, this is unexpected. The manger does not make sense. I'm sorry, you can't just gloss over the manger. The fact that the Son of God got placed in a feeding trough for animals. This wasn't like a culture that was going around to their version of Target and being like, I want to pick out the perfect feeding trough for my new baby. Like, that's not how this looked. This wasn't a thing like, hey, let's get the best feeding trough for my best baby. This is going to be awesome. No, this was a one-off. This was weird. This was unexpected. How many of you guys like grew up or maybe have animals today? You know, I, I don't want to be vulgar for the sake of being vulgar, but I'm going to be vulgar for a reason. Have you seen a cow pee before? It's gross. There's no like aiming. There's no like regard for where you are or what's going on around you. It's just like fire hose. It's like splatter everywhere. And they do it right next to where they eat. It's gross. Like, this is not a clean, I mean, yeah, Mary probably cleaned it up a little bit, sure, we can speculate. But at the same time, the fact that he was put in a feeding trough, it's like, we have nowhere else for him to sit. Like, this is it. This is all the Son of God can get. I mean, this whole idea, I just want you to understand, this idea, this is unexpected, this is crazy, this is really upside down, backwards, like all of it. In this culture especially, humble wasn't a good thing. Humble was not even close to being a good thing. In fact, if you were humble, you were considered weak in the low rungs of society. This was not a good thing. Uh, in a culture where might made right, that means if you have the gold, you make the rules. If you're more powerful than the people around you, you leverage that power for your benefit. Instead, the Son of God showed up in a manger. This is wild. This is unexpected. There's some significant meaning to the manger. We'll get back to that in a minute, but I want to take you to uh, my favorite Christmas season growing up. I was 14 when the Fellowship of the Ring came out. Lord of the Rings, you know, came out Christmas time. I was like blown away, just the special effects, the magnitude of everything, the fact that you, they made, they had ways where they could get like tens of thousands of orcs like on a plane, marching across the plane, the makeup and everything. Peter Jackson did an incredible job on it. And it just blew my mind and in that coming of age time. I was, you know, safely away from the PG-13 threshold. I was now 14 and there could be no uh, debate on whether or not I was allowed to watch it. And I was at the movie theater eating it all up. I mean, they had wizards, the good kind, you know, not the Harry Potter kind. You know, they're fighting each other and it's, and it's good. You know, you got orcs, you got, you got, you got elves, you got uh, dwarves, men, like all of it. We're fighting and it's brutal and it's big plot lines. And then there's a cliffhanger. You got to wait another year. And it was Christmas time each and every year those came out. And I just loved it. We do it as a family. And it was just absolutely incredible. I just watched, rewatched the series um, just in this last year, and it, it stands up. It holds up well. Like, incredible, incredible trilogy. I love it. And you know when you go back and watch something after you've uh, maybe watched it as a kid or something like that, um, there's, there's different things that stand out. 
different like major plot lines. You start feeling like a film critic a little bit. You're like, oh, I didn't notice that kind of, you know, subplot to it and all this stuff. And there's a major plot throughout the Lord of the Rings that I think was intentional by J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a believer himself. And you see this, this kind of meta-narrative of the idea that amongst the elves, which were incredible, but they were kind of pansies, you know, and, and amongst the dwarves who, you know, they had all the ability to do amazing things, but they just couldn't get out of their own way, and the men who had their own pride and their own things. But you'd expect like a wizard or, you know, maybe an elf, Legolas or Aragorn or something like that to be like a, to be the hero in the show or be a hero in the trilogy. When we look at like, who was the hero? I mean, it was really kind of Frodo and Sam, right? I mean, the, the, the kind of good for nothing halflings with like awkward hairy feet and really nothing on paper to, to offer the rest of the world. Yet when we look at the story of the Lord of the Rings, it was the unexpected, it was the powerless that came through to be the heroes. I feel like that's a good picture for the manger. I mean, that's really kind of what the manger represents. You know, the Son of God coming to earth in an unexpected time to an unexpected family in an unexpected town in an unexpected way. It seems like upside down and backwards in all of it, and it was intentional. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing when we get into the meaning of that. Because why? Jesus was ushering in something new. And in that, it was unexpected. The manger shows us this powerful thing. Why? Because it shows us that the powerless by the world's standards is often actually powerful. I I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that I think God loves an underdog story. Why? Because he's brought glory, more glory through that, taking something that's powerless and making it powerful and just absolutely blowing our minds with what we think is possible and what we think is right. It's unexpected, it's new, and it's beautiful. And when Jesus came to the world, again, the manger kind of ushering this in, he came not to leverage his power and his clout for his own gain, but instead to give to us, a group of people that didn't deserve it, that didn't earn it, and it's beautiful. And throughout his life, I mean, this theme continued. Clearly, throughout his earthly ministry, this went on and on and on, even to the point of his own death. It was no different. In fact, I think he stepped it up. He scaled it up a bit. And we see this picture um, of, the, of the upper room in John chapter 13 that's just absolutely beautiful. It's the night that Jesus was going to be betrayed by Judas, hand over, handed over to the Jews and the Romans to, to be beaten and, and mocked and, and tortured and eventually killed. Jesus, knowing all this is happening, goes and does something again, unexpected, backwards, something that messes with our mind a little bit. And let's take a look at what happens here in John chapter 13. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's poetic. It's beautiful. So during supper, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, understanding all of this, he rose from supper. And he goes and does something unexpected. It says he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he wrapped it around his waist. 
He poured water into a basin and he began washing or began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. And that's significant too because he's taking the dirt and the grime of them onto himself in this beautiful, beautiful picture. So he wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And when it came to Simon Peter, who was the inner of his inner circle, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Again, Peter's just like, what, what are you doing? This is so backwards. And he was so vocal. God bless him, Peter. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. But afterwards, soon, this is all going to make sense. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And I, I think this picture is just incredible. I mean, the son of God, you know, he shows up in a manger, like, okay, maybe we can overlook that part. But now, towards the end of his life, he's on his knees, washing the, the feet of his disciples, doing what, what could be the most humbling thing that you can do for somebody else. Again, I say, yeah, put yourself in the sandals. It's like what they wore back then. They didn't have like boots, you know, that are covering everything. I mean, they're walking around all day. They're not driving their cars. Cars didn't exist, right? So they're, they're, they're I mean, the feet, were necessary, they were dirty, they were like a tools though. I mean, they were like, it was like washing tires, you know? I mean, this was crazy. I mean, it was, it was something they did in that culture, but it was only in the most humbling, humbling way. And Jesus here, we see he did, he's not leveraging his power and his clout to lord it over the people around him. Instead, he's humbling himself when he doesn't have to, leveraging his power for the people around him, for the benefit of the people around him. And I think when you look at this, you don't have to be a Jesus person to, to, to recognize the significance of this. The king of the universe actually came to the earth to serve you, to love you, to humble himself before, I mean, that's crazy. It doesn't make any sense for good reason. Why? Because that should pierce even the hardest of hearts. The son of God, I mean, who does this? You don't see this in any other religion. You don't see this anywhere else. In other people, even the best of people, this doesn't make any sense. This is backwards, upside down, all of it. I don't know if you've ever given a pedicure before. It's a humbling thing. I don't even, I've, I've gone to get a pedicure before uh, a couple times. I don't know if I'll do it again. I'm, I'm not a big fan. I mean, I, I feel bad even though I've paid the money. Like, I feel bad, and I've gotten an ingrown toenail a couple times, and it's horrible, you know? So I'm not about that. But at the same time, if you've given a pedicure before, it's a humbling thing. Like, there's a reason. Like, they usually wear masks when they do it because stuff splashes up into their face, and that's gross, you know? It, it's a humbling thing to get on your knees and to wash someone's feet. It's a humbling, humbling Thing. And when you think about like, well, what, what's fair in the world and the fairness economy and what we kind of look in our own flesh and we're like, oh, this is right and this is wrong and this is good and this is bad. In our own mind, this does not make any sense. Jesus is totally doing something that's unexpected. But he's setting a precedent for morality in this. He's setting a precedent for the way that we are to live in response to this. And I think this is significant for a couple of reasons. One of them is because if you think about how it is that we act apart from Jesus, I mean, there's this thing called common grace we're not going to get into today, but it's just the, the idea that we, 
We, we uh, have this, this measure of, of understanding of, of how, what is right and what is wrong from kind of Judeo-Christian values that doesn't exist apart from that, really. The, the rest of it, we're just kind of up to our own devices and our own minds to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And guess what? When that's happened throughout history, it's gotten real ugly. I mean, it's gotten ugly. Uh, when, when I was on my honeymoon, I'll never forget this. Uh, I was by no means perfect, um, but I was, uh, we were on the way, we, we went to Cabo on our honeymoon, and, and uh, we got into this shuttle going to, uh, from the airport to the, uh, uh, to the hotel, and um, you know, there was this vacation bro who was like kind of traveling with us. You guys traveled before you know vacation, bro. He's like the guy that, you know, he hits, you get, as soon as you get into the airplane, airplane, the vacation's on. I'm sorry if that's you. Um, but as soon as you hit the airplane, like, it's vacation on, like, double whiskey, like, we're doing this thing. But then he passes out pretty quick, and then he gets, but he boots and rallies. And when he gets off the plane, he's like, all right, we're, we're in it. So he's, like, buying a beer in the airport, and he's just, like, drinking it or whatever. And so we, and then you get into the shuttle, and he's, like, drinking. He's like, yeah, we can do that. And it's Mexico, man. We can just drink in the car. I'm like, okay, you know, that's great. I was like 21, 22 or something. I was young and I was just watching this guy. He's got his, you know, his shirt buttoned down, you know, already in vacation mode. He's like down to here, showing a little chest hair. And uh, he's just like, and then he starts talking to the driver. And I'm like, dude, the guy, he was such a jerk to the driver. I mean, he was treating him like subhuman. It's like, hey, I paid you for this. Now you give me what you owe me. And you owe me a good time because I'm on vacation and I'm in a third world country. So you better serve me. But this is the world, right? This is the world apart from Jesus. This is what it looks like. It's might made right. It's like, I paid you, you owe me. This is what we get without Jesus. It's, it's, it's your justice and my justice. It's, it's, it's Nazi justice and it's clan justice, right? And when we have our own basis for what's right and what's wrong, we end up in terrible, terrible places. And Jesus came to correct that, to give a moral standard, and to say, no, not so in my kingdom. We are to live different. This is supposed to look different. And he showed that, right? He showed that when he showed up in a manger. This is where it all began. And he's like, this is how my kingdom's gonna look. It's not gonna look like the kingdoms of this world, and it's gonna blow your mind, and it's gonna be so backwards according to the rest of the world, so we stand out like a sore thumb, or at least we should, right, as Jesus people. This was new. This was unexpected. And then, of course, Jesus lived a humble life, pouring out his life until the very end for the people around us. And if anybody had a right to say, hey, I'm here, son of God, serve me, right? That's him. If anybody could go around and leverage his power and his clout for the benefit of himself, Jesus was owed that. He didn't take it. He wasn't cruising around with his disciples, showing up at restaurants and being like, yeah, I know you're full right now. We're not on the list, but you got my name on there, right? Like Jesus, party of five. You got a, you got a table in the back, right? I'm going to cash in this favor that I'm owed because why? I'm the son of God. He didn't operate like that. Instead, he humbled himself. I mean, this, is, this should mess with you. This messes with me. Again, no other God does this. You can look at the world of religions. It's like no other gods do this. They say, hey, you do for me and maybe I'll help you. You do something for me and maybe, you, maybe you'll get some favor. And Jesus came and paid for it. He did it all when we had nothing in the world to give him.
And he goes on and it says, when they had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your teacher and Lord, right, the Son of God, have washed your feet, how much more you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. I mean, what he's saying is pretty clear here. He's like, if I, the Son of God, worthy of it all, would humble myself onto my knees to give to you, not to leverage my power for my benefit, but to leverage my power for you, how much more should you go and do the same to the people around you? And this, it's like, you, oh, that's hard. You get to the place, it's like, maybe I can accept that he poured out his life for me. Now I have to go and do the same this is hard. This is where it gets challenging for us, right? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, because of uh, his humility and his example that he left for us, he calls us to go and do the same. And when he leaves later on, as you read through the story, and I would encourage it, uh, we see later that, you know, after Jesus uh, gives the ultimate act of humility on the cross and then shows that he has the power over sin and death, and then he promises the Holy Spirit that his spirit would actually dwell in those of us who look to him for salvation. And then he says, hey, with, a, with the Holy Spirit's power, you can go to the same. Like you have the strength to pour out your life like the example that I showed you, and it's this beautiful thing. It's a picture of the manger. And he tells us, hey, this is how you are to respond. In a similar way, right, we should leverage our power, our position for the people around us, our resources, all of it. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. We are to leverage our position, our power, our clout, all of it for the people, the benefit of the people around us. And what this looks like is metaphorically or maybe literally washing someone's feet. I need a volunteer because we're doing this. Let's go. I need a volunteer. John, come on up. I want to show you what this looks like. Metaphorically, I need you to take off your shoes. Yeah. No, it's a, no. Oh, I guess I could. No, you can do it. When Jesus gave us this example, he showed us what humility looks like. He showed us that it costs something, right? Washing feet, it costs something. It costs us our time to physically do this, right? It costs us our time to do this, it costs us our pride, right? As you humble yourself onto your knees and you wash someone's feet, it costs you strength. This can be difficult. This can be a scrubbing task. I don't, I don't anticipate that'll be the case, John. But uh, this can be a difficult thing. Go ahead and put your feet in there. Yeah, there we go. It costs us your strength. 
costs us cleanliness, right? As things may splash up, things may get dirty, but it costs us something. It costs us strength. It costs us pride. Go ahead and bring your feet out. Costs us the cleanliness as we take on the dirt of other people onto ourselves. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. But it costs something. But it's necessary, right? He says, Look, as I've washed you, you must wash others. And this is, I mean, this is hard. And, and when I look at my own life, I, I know it's easy to be like, oh, pastor, like this is easy for you. You're a pastor. Like it's not, I need to, I need to work on this. Ask anybody close to me. <laughs> I, got some, I got some ground to make up. Like we got to work on this together. So I need this just as much as you. I want us to recognize this. Let's do this together though. I mean, this is what he's called us to do as a church, as a people. And there's far, there, there's not nearly enough of this in Christian circles. And I'm ready to be like, oh, hey, let's do this. Let's live like Jesus. Let's look like Jesus. Let's serve like Jesus. So there's no time like the present. What would it look like this Christmas season if we were to wash the feet of the people around us? What would it look like to give of your time, right? Because it costs time. What would it look like to give of your time to the people around you this Christmas season? And think about that. You know, there was this thing before I had kids called me time. And sometimes I think I'm like owed this thing still. And at least for a season, what would it look like to forfeit me time? To be like, yeah, I know, I, I, I feel like I should be entitled to this, but again, reading, like leveraging your power for the people around you, that looks a little different than me time, doesn't it? What would it look like to pour your time for the people around you? What would it look like to give of your pride, to serve other people, to serve your spouse, to serve your kids, to honor and serve your parents, to serve Uncle Bill, who you can't stand. You're going to see him over the holidays. He drives you crazy. It's always an uncle for some reason. Careful uncles. What would it look like to serve and love the unlovable? It takes of your pride because you don't want to do it in your flesh. What would that look like? What would Jesus do in that situation? Maybe it looks like giving up your pride where you give up your right to be right. Where you're like, I know I'm right on this. I know politics always come up. You know, when you're with family over the holidays, what would it look like to just give up your right to be right? To be like, hey, look at just as Jesus was, I'm gonna be people focused instead of being, being right focused. Instead of winning an argument, maybe the win is actually maintaining and growing the relationship. Maybe the right thing to do in that situation is to actually show the heart of God and put yourself under them. I mean, what would that look like? Of course, the rest of the year, you have ample opportunity to do this as well. But let's just focus. Let's start here. What would it look like to give of your strength during this holiday season? To give of your strength. I mean, really, to understand that, like, as Jesus said, it's better to give than it is to receive. 
You understand that maybe Christmas isn't all about me. Maybe instead, because I have strength, maybe I have resources, I'm gonna leverage that for the people around you. Not just about doing Christmas on your terms, but maybe allowing you know, your sister-in-law or your mother-in-law to do Christmas on their terms. To show Jesus in that, to show some humility in that, because that's what Jesus did. To give of your cleanliness, and maybe this is the hardest one, to really take someone else's offense on yourself, not in the way that you're gonna take up somebody else's offense to like be mad at them or whatever, but to actually say, hey, I I know you owe me, but I'm gonna take that on myself. I'm gonna go ahead and absorb that. What is that? I mean, that's what Jesus did for us when he forgave us. That's a picture of him washing Judas's feet. Are you kidding me? The guy who he knew was gonna betray him and he washed his feet anyway. I mean, who does that? That's Jesus. And you're like, maybe I can accept that. But then he says, go and do it as I've done for you to absorb someone else's hurt, to say, hey, you don't owe me anymore. I'm going to take that on myself. And it's going to hurt, but it's necessary. What would that look like to forgive? I know some of this stuff is hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for all of us. But I, I want to I wanna not miss the opportunity in this. To commit to this, to have people pray with you in this. And we're going to have a prayer room open right back here afterwards. We'd love to pray with you about anything, but specifically about this. Let's not miss this opportunity. I want to pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for today. God, thank you for coming and not leveraging your power for your own benefit, but for pouring out your life for us, Lord. And help us, help that just to sink into our souls this Christmas season. Help us to remember your great sacrifice, the pain that you endured, Lord, the the way in which you came to pour your life out for us. And would that be an example and a driving force and give us the ability by your spirit to love those, to pour out our life for those around us so that the world will look at us and believe you've changed us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.